Welcome to the Center Square Radio Hour for the first weekend of March 2024. I'm your host, Chris Krug. The Center Square and the Radio Hour are projects of the Franklin News Foundation, a 501c3 independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news service. Established in 2019, the Center Square Newswire publishes original taxpayer-centric straight news that focuses on the size, scope, and effectiveness of state and federal government. On the Center Square Radio Hour, our journalists explore their top stories going beyond the headlines. Today, we'll also share economic insights from Dr. Rafi Debungi, PhD economist, and bring in the latest in K-12 education news from our Franklin News Foundation's Chalkboard News team. This week, we'll hear where the election stands heading into Super Tuesday. We'll look at the latest in Tennessee's case against the NCAA and their name, image, and likeness rules. And we'll head down to the Texas border where two presidents, sitting President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, made a visit on the same day. We'll be right back with all that and more in the Center Square Radio Hour. Are you tired of news that puts politics over people? At the nonprofit Franklin News Foundation, we believe in putting people over politics by delivering nonpartisan news and audio content that serves you, the American taxpayer. With Franklin News Foundation, you can read fact-based, state-focused news for free at thecentersquare.com. You can listen to civil, balanced conversations between policy experts through our podcast network at americastalking.com. Or you can get in-depth news on K-12 education spending, curriculum, and school safety at chalkboardnews.com. It's all free through Franklin, where we put you, the American taxpayer, first in every story, episode, and conversation. And it's only possible through our supporters. Together, we can produce content that puts people over politics and brings Americans the news they deserve. Become a supporter today at franklinnews.org donate. Once again, that's franklinnews.org slash donate. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Joining us with the latest in election news is the Center Square's Dan McCaleb. Michigan and South Carolina voters weighed in on their Republican presidential primary this past week, overwhelmingly supporting former President Donald Trump in his bid to reclaim the White House. On the Democratic side, Michigan voters unsurprisingly backed President Joe Biden for re-election, though there was a large faction of Democrats who voted, quote, uncommitted in protest of Biden's stance on the Israel-Hamas war. While Republican voters in Michigan get another shot in Saturday's caucuses because of the unique party rules in that state, it is Super Tuesday that most Americans are paying attention to. Joining me today to discuss what to look for on this coming Super Tuesday, when 15 states and one U.S. territory vote in primaries and caucuses across the country, is the Center Square's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief, Casey Harper. Casey, former South Carolina governor and U.M. ambassador Nikki Haley remains in the race against Trump, despite suffering big loss after big loss in the early primaries, including in her home state of South Carolina. Will Tuesday be your last stand? Oh, uh, that is the million dollar question, Dan. Yeah, Nikki Haley has taken many, many uh, punches <laughs> on the chin, taken on the chin many times and has remained standing. I mean, she has really not won a major state yet. She has peeled away delegates from Trump. And I mean, I could make the case in her defense if we want to do that. But there are a lot of Americans, a lot of donors, and of course, many Trump supporters saying, Haley, why are you still in the race? Um, And at Tuesday, if things go the way that polling suggests they do, which is a sweeping win for former President Trump, then those question marks and those calls for Haley to drop out will only increase. Well, let's let's look at the states that are in play on Tuesday. It's it's 15 of them, which is a large number, of course. But there's also some giant states population-wise and delegate-wise in play on Tuesday, including the 
two, two largest states population-wise in the country, California and Texas. In addition to those two states, you've got Alabama on the GOP side only, Alaska, Arkansas, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. And there's also the U.S. territory of American Samoa. Don't want to forget them. So while Trump can't secure by the numbers the Republican nomination on Tuesday, he can get real close to doing that. What are your expectations? Yeah, I mean, the expectations on the votes, I think Trump is going to handily win these states. Many of these states are very friendly to him. It is possible that Haley is able to, you know, to steal away some delegates. That's definitely possible. She's not a a laughable candidate. She's not a candidate who's getting 1% of the vote, right? I mean, she has a sizable minority, not enough to beat Trump. But in South Carolina, she got about 40% of the vote, which is, of course, it's a 20 point. You could look at it as a 20 point loss. But most of the time, you know, when you look at Biden's opponents, for instance, they're getting, you know, just a handful of votes. I mean, 1%, maybe a few percentage points, setting aside the uncommitted issue, which we can get at. So she, she is making inroads. She's pulling in a lot of moderates. She has a different demographic than former President Trump. And I think to many donors and Republican insiders, uh, Nikki Haley could be the future of the party, a woman who is able to hold some Republican values, but also bring in moderates, speak to suburban women, which have really become the swing vote in, in many important states. Suburban women, Haley, they think can reach um, those women in a way that President, you know, President Biden just cannot. Um, so I think strategically, it makes a lot of sense. But ideologically, when when it comes to values in the base, they see Haley as untrustworthy. Many of them do. I think these attacks about the the warmongering and the Boeing connection that Haley has uh, are really hurting her pretty bad right now, especially with the fight over more Ukraine funding becoming such a divisive issue in the Republican Party. So in some ways, uh, it's a bad time to be a, a Boeing tide candidate running for running for president. But I, I think Trump's going to do well on Tuesday. I mean, from Haley's perspective, I've kind of come up with three potential theories to answer the question of why in the world is Haley still running, which is the question that many voters have. And I'll go through them really quickly, Dan. I'll try. Okay, the first is we know uh, that it's not beyond party leadership to steal or kind of shift a primary one way or the other. Bernie Sanders supporters will well remember how, you know, and have complained that they feel that their um, primary was stolen from them and given, well, first really Hillary Clinton and then to Joe Biden. With Joe Biden, in the when he was running, uh, he was not doing well, but you know, the, the idea is that a lot of the party, Buttigieg and Kamala Harris and these got together and endorsed Biden because they thought that Bernie couldn't win a general. And so the party was afraid that Bernie would be too unelectable. So they really rallied against Bernie Sanders to put it forward a more electable candidate. So it's not beyond the pale that some kind of delegate switching, almost coup-like could happen within the Republican Party if Haley is able to get enough delegates to be competitive. That's one theory. Um, another theory is we know that former President uh, Donald Trump is facing nearly 100 criminal charges. He has court dates on the calendar. Some of these cases I've read through, you know, the documentation and the evidence, and they don't look good for the former president. Now, whether he can actually, they can actually get a conviction and all those things and whether the Supreme Court says he has immunity is up in the air. There's a lot of things up in the air, but it's, it's without question that Trump is in legal trouble. And if some of those convictions come in, the party might be in a pinch looking for an electable candidate who has not yet dropped out. And in comes Nikki Haley. So, you know, those are, you know, two of the big ones as we're running, running low on time. But I think the, 
that's, you know, what could be happening there is she's just preparing herself, waiting to be the candidate in the wings. And we'll see if it works. I mean, right now, though, she has to perform well, even if she doesn't win these states. A lot of states in the primary have partial delegates where you can win some of the delegates. Um, and we're seeing that affect Biden with the uncommitted vote. Thank you for your insight, uh, Casey. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to our D.C. team for that update. You're listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug. Joining us with a story from Tennessee is Eliana Cardonal. Tennessee had a victory in its case against the NCAA and its name, image, and likeness rules. U.S. District Judge Clifton L. Corker granted a preliminary injunction in the case. Joining me today is the Center Square's John Steiff. John, can you give us the background on this case and what this ruling means for it? Yeah, so NCAA athletes have started to be able to actually make money from sponsors and local businesses, things like that. That was an Ed O'Bannon case uh, out of California that kind of changed those rules. And after that went into place with athletes actually being able to make money, maintaining their amateur status, the NCAA tried to put in a bunch of rules, obviously, to create kind of a framework of how all of that can work. One thing that happened is that at different universities, there are collectives that were created from local businesses that try to get athletes to go to that school. So the NCAA put in a bunch of rules. They call those NIL collectives booster organizations, and they put in rules saying that athletes can't talk to or negotiate with those booster organizations until they sign and commit to go to a university. The NCAA was investigating Tennessee for athletes for violating that rule. Previously, they investigated University of Florida athletes for violating that rule. So the Tennessee Attorney General, along with Virginia, decided that they were going to file a lawsuit against that, saying, well, that's antitrust because you're impeding the athlete's ability to make money by saying you can only negotiate with these collectives after you commit to a school. You have no idea how much money or what you can make then until you make the commitment already. So Corker decided, yeah, that is anti-competitive. Yes, the NCAA is trying to maintain the amateur status of these athletes, trying to maintain, you know, equal balance between the schools so they can get the best basketball and football players or or women's basketball players, or whatever the athlete happens to be, because it's there's a broad range of which athletes are making the most money. But they're trying to have as even of an environment as they can, rather than whichever school can gather the most businesses and most money will get the most and best athletes and always win. And a preliminary injunction, like it says, is preliminary. It's, it's just kind of an early step in the process, but what's kind of the reasoning behind granting this injunction before the case gets fully litigated? Well, they they actually go through a series of tests to kind of see, the judge does, to see what's the value of this. And, you know, you ha- the judge has to determine that, do I believe that the plaintiffs have a good chance to win the case? And he said, yeah. Do I believe there's going to be harm to these athletes if the NCAA is able to keep these rules in place while they prosecute this case? You know, this case could go on for years. And is it bad for the athletes to be blocked from getting 
the most and best NIL agreement they can over the next few years. Well, yeah, you know, the athletes that are currently in place or, or would switch schools maybe this off season are going to be financially harmed by this and they'll be gone by the time this is decided. So Corker decided, yeah, there's, there's definitely harm that's going to be had for these athletes if this is in place during the period of time that they're in school. And it's also a nod to the fact that the state is going to succeed on this case. I don't think the NCAA even thinks it's going to be able to win this case based on their response afterwards. They're just kind of putting their hands up because they've lost so much power in this and and so much ability to determine how any of this works. So what's the broader impact of this case? Well, if you look at it, West Virginia and Ohio have a very similar case going on with the same claims of antitrust with athletes that are trying to transfer between universities. They put a restriction on the NCAA being they saying that, okay, you can transfer from one school to another one time, play right away. If you do it a second time, you need to get a waiver. And and athletes will come up with all kinds of reasons from, you know, a sick family member, I need to go closer to home to, you know, I can make more money in NIL. And the NCAA has been having to determine all these things through these this waiver process. And it takes a while and you never know when they're going to respond. Well, there's an injunction in that case, too. And it looks like the NCAA can be challenged in a lot of the rules that it puts together because any rule that it puts in place that doesn't allow an athlete to compete right away and make the most money that they possibly can is going to fail for the same reasons as this. So what does that do? That changes the economics in a lot of ways of college athletics because for the longest time, we had the NCAA and all these schools making a ton of money, making money on these media contracts, and the all the money would go into the athletic departments. They would build nice stadiums and, and awesome locker rooms and redo them every couple of years. The coaches would make a money, ton of money, and you would have all these layers of athletic directors and athletic administration. That's where all the money would go. These school athletic departments are nonprofits, so they have to be even at the end of the year. So they have to spend all this money that they're making. Guess what? When you're set up to do that and the athletes come in and they start taking some of that sponsorship money, they start making money, they start getting more things from the university, more things are going towards the athletes. Now, that power has shifted so much from coaches in the athletic departments and the NCAA having all the power and all the money to now the athletes are having more power. The states are defending them. In the transfer case, the U.S. Department of Justice even got involved because they thought this is the right thing to do. So the NCAA and the university was like, this is shifting everything. And there was even a report within the last week that a lot of the coaches, the big-time coaches that are making a ton of money are wanting to go to the professional leagues. They want to go to the NFL. They want to go to the NBA. And they want to do that because the money isn't going to stay there for college coaches because they were getting such a large portion of that bucket of money that was coming in. And now the athletes are getting more. Well, John, thanks for joining us today. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you, Eliana and John, for that update. You've been listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug. Back with a story from Texas is Dan McCaleb. 
President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump held separate news conferences near the border in Texas on Thursday, where their vastly differing views on the surge in illegal immigration were on display. Trump called the border crisis a, quote, Joe Biden invasion, while Biden blamed Republicans for not passing the U.S. Senate's immigration bill. Joining me today to discuss this is Casey Harper, the Senate's Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief. Casey, recent polling shows that the border crisis is now among the top one or two issues for voters heading into November's presidential election. The two likely nominees, Trump and Biden, couldn't be farther apart on the situation there. What are your takeaways from the dueling news conferences from Thursday? It's all televised. It's all campaign. It's all trying to reach Americans. And um, the reason for that is I'll point to a recent Gallup poll, Dan, which just came out um, this week, which found that for the for the first time since 2019, immigration is now the single most important problem to voters, not the economy, which is kind of incredible. Um, because, inflation, yeah. Right. I mean, the, the economy and inflation was dominating in the early part of Biden's term, which really is not good for him in his reelection because it was either the first half was inflation, which is terrible, and the second half, which is immigration, which he's being being blamed for. Biden is really in a pinch here, and he's trying to fix it, and I think it might be too little, too late. He's running against a very a, a candidate, former President Donald Trump, who really built his campaign on immigration. I mean, all the biggest attacks against Trump, if you remember the first time around, were his support for the wall, some of his controversial comments about migrants. Um, and so trying to convince voters, um, Biden trying to convince voters that Republicans and Trump aren't, you know, actually trying to fix the border, I think is a tough sell for them because, you know, all the polling shows that there are certain parties that own certain issues and voters trust certain parties more on certain issues. So when it comes to health care, voters trust Democrats more. It's just the polling shows that uh, when it comes to the environment and climate change, voters trust Democrats. But when it comes to the economy and when it comes to immigration, voters think Republicans have the answers to those issues. And so, so much of what determines who wins an election besides the individual candidates is what issues are most important to voters and then which party has a reputation for taking those issues more seriously. And so that's the backdrop of these visits, which are clearly, you know, campaign stops, uh, not just to win votes in Texas, but to win them nationwide because immigration has become such a big issue. As far as what was said at these different stops, I think Biden made some strategic mistakes. He really asked former President Donald Trump to speak to Congress on his behalf and, and, you know, to say, hey, let's work on this together to get Congress to do something. I think that was a show of weakness. Most people say, hey, you're the president. You know, why are you reaching out to Trump? It just kind of reinforces this idea that Republicans are the answer to the immigration problem. Now, Biden's strongest point is, hey, Congress is gridlocked and they need to do something about this. It's a strong point because there's no trouble convincing Republicans that something could be Congress's fault because Congress polls very poorly. And, you know, most Americans believe that Congress is pretty dysfunctional right now. And they can barely keep the government open. So it's, it's not a hard sell to say that they haven't fixed the border crisis. Now, from a Republicans' perspective, they're being very um, clear on their messaging on this and their argument, which is, hey, Biden, you've been in office four years and you haven't fixed this problem. You can't show up in an election year and blame Congress. And by the way, uh, all these problems were created by your administrative changes. You know, this is not um, a Congress issue. You know, you stop deporting people. You change the way that asylum claims are handled so that it's easy for people to come in. You basically created this reputation that anyone can walk across the border. And when, you know, when voters see these, vi- these pictures and videos online, for instance, of 
border patrol agents lifting up barbed wire so that migrants can walk under it. Uh, it's really hard to sell the American people that Biden is the one trying to fix the problem because he's overcoming the reputation of the Democrat Party and just years of his own policies being at work and helping create the crisis. Let's talk briefly about President Biden's stance. He's consistently said Republicans are blocking immigration reform in Congress. Uh, he got behind this this bill that, that was filed in the Democrat-controlled Senate that he says would fix the issues at the border. But the centersquare.com, we fact-checked his comments about that border bill. And one of the things they've been touting is that if there's a surge in migration where there's more than 5,000 border crossers a day, they could close the border. But that's not really true because there's all kinds of exceptions mm-hmm. in that. Family units don't count against the 5,000. They're no longer doing DNA testing at the border. Uh, what Border Patrol agents have told us, the Center Square, is that the cartels lump non-family member units together when they get them to cross the border. And if they say they're a part of a family, even though they're not, Border Patrol agents are forced to accept them and allow them into the country. Another part of the bill would give Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, who, of course, Republicans have already impeached. He's still awaiting trial in the Senate, and that's a whole other story there. It's looking like the Democrat-controlled Senate is holding up any impeachment trial of Mayorkas. Anyway, this bill would give Mayorkas tons of discretion um, when it comes to deciding whether there is a surge, there isn't a surge, who should be allowed into the country, who shouldn't be allowed into the country. Republicans say that's already codified in law. We've impeached Secretary Mayorkas. We don't want to hand more power or more authority over to him. So Biden deflecting, saying it's a Republican problem at the border, that's a campaign thing. But in reality, it's just it doesn't seem to be true because we know that there's been huge hurry. It seems like every single month breaks previous month's record for the amount of illegal border crossers. And of course, we also know that this isn't just a, a border state issue. It's a national issue because these migrants are ending up in New York City, in Chicago, in Denver, Washington, right. D.C., etc. The way I would put it is the Democratic bill, which they're trying to work on with Republicans, one version already failed. It seems like they're working on another. It seems to try to solve the problem by giving a lot more leeway and power to DHS, Department of Homeland Security. And Democrats say, see, this will fix the problem. But Republicans say, no, DHS is the problem. They don't enforce. They already have plenty of money. And, and plenty of um, rules in place to enforce the border, and they just, just don't have the political will. So giving them more leeway and more power actually can make the problem worse because um, they don't actually want to enforce the border. And we've seen that. They've changed. For whatever they say, they've um, turned many border agents into really paperwork processing agents for migrants who wanted to come into the country. And so it's just, there's no trust on the issue, and they don't Republicans don't think that this bill is being done in good faith when it comes down to it. And then there's a secondary or maybe primary political motive, which is Republicans don't want Democrats to get a sort of a, a bill that doesn't actually solve the problem passed so that they can neutralize this border crisis question. So every time the border comes up, they can say, that's why we passed this bill. Give it time to work. How much time? Well, how about just past November? That'll be enough time. So that's there is a political consideration in there as well. Casey, as usual, thanks for your analysis, and thank you for joining us today. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you to Dan and Casey for that update. That will do it for the first half of the Center Square Radio Hour. After the break, we'll look at more top stories from across the nation. Exactly how much fentanyl did California seize in the past year? 
What did teachers and students have to say about how the debates over race and gender affect their classrooms? And what does the Congressional Budget Office's 10-year economic outlook suggest? We'll have all that and more when we return on the Center Square Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Krug. Here are this week's quick hits, some of the stories you may have missed at thecentersquare.com. In Virginia, during a session in the state Senate, Lieutenant Governor Winston Sears referred to Senator Danica Rome, the state's first openly transgender senator, as Sir, causing Rome and other senators to leave the chamber in protest. The session resumed after a brief recess, but the commotion appeared to continue, interfering with the agenda, leading the Lieutenant Governor to address the chamber. Sears emphasized her intention not to offend and her commitment to doing the people's business. She urged grace in handling such situations. Rome has not publicly commented on the incident. In Florida, the Orange County Commission has allocated $4.5 million in remaining federal COVID-19 relief funds to pay off the medical debts of county residents. This follows a request from Central Florida Jobs with Justice for $8.7 million for medical debt relief. The initiative aims to alleviate the burden of medical debt, which amounts to $827 million for around 300,000 residents. While some commissioners expressed support for the program, questions were raised regarding the negotiation process and the involvement of third-party nonprofits. In Colorado, communities around the city of Denver claim the sanctuary city is busing migrants to them. Aurora City Council recently passed a resolution demanding that other municipalities stop busing migrants to their city, citing financial strain. Some of these neighboring city officials accused Denver of not alerting them to the influx of migrants, leading to concerns about resource availability and the overall handling of the situation. And Colorado Springs Mayor Yemi Mobilade re-emphasized his city's commitment to prioritize its residents' needs amid the migrant crisis. An Alliance for American Manufacturer report warns of the threat posed by Chinese electric vehicle makers, particularly manufacturer BYD, to the U.S. electric vehicle market. BYD's release of a $14,000 EV in February could undercut domestic EVs significantly. The report highlights China's tactics, such as leveraging Mexico's trade relationship with the U.S. to avoid tariffs, and recommends imposing exclusionary tariffs on all Chinese automobile imports and enforcing trade agreement rules to protect the domestic auto industry. You can find more on these stories and others like them from across the country at thecentersquare.com. We'll be right back with more on the Center Square Radio Hour. Some people would call him a loser. He ran for state office. He was beaten. He started a business. He failed. He ran for Congress. He lost. He was nominated for vice president. He lost again. But he knew only those who never tried are the real losers. And Abraham Lincoln was no loser. Persistence. Pass it on. From the Foundation for a Better Life at values.com. Welcome back to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm Chris Crew. Reporting on a story from California, let's go back to Eliana Kernodal. The impact of fentanyl on communities, families, and individuals across the country has only grown in recent years. California especially has seen these impacts. There are some staggering numbers on this from the California National Guard. Joining me today is Kenneth Shrupp, California reporter for the Center Square. Kenneth, what data did the governor's office release about fentanyl seizures in the last year? 
Newsom just announced that the California National Guard seized a record 62,224 pounds of fentanyl in California and the state's ports of entry in 2023. According to him, that's enough fentanyl to kill the entire world's population nearly twice over, assuming that a fatal dose is 2 milligrams for somebody who has not been exposed to that substance or other opioids. And how much has the quantity uh, that they've seized grown over the years? Well, let me start with a little bit of a caveat here. This data provided by the governor is only for seizures supported by California National Guard operations. This may not be indicative of the entire flow, but uh, in 2021, the Cal Guards helped seize 5,334 pounds. 2022, that number went up nearly six times to 28,765 pounds, and then nearly doubled between 23 and 22 to 62,224 pounds. Of course, Cal Guard has also been increasing the size of its deployments to the southern border, so it would make sense that you would see a commensurate rise just from increased activity by Cal Guard. However, it does seem that with opioid deaths continuing to rise at a very high rate, that the amount of opioids being smuggled into the state is rising rapidly as well. And what is the value of this much fentanyl if it were to be sold? So 62,224 pounds is estimated to be about $649 million in value. This stuff gets mixed in with all kinds of other drugs. It gets mixed in with drugs that people don't even think there's going to be any fentanyl. It could show up in cocaine. It can show up in other pills where people think they're getting maybe black market, Oxycontin or codeine or other pain medications that they're trying to buy illegally. You really don't know what is being laced with fentanyl these days. And the legislature continues to look for ways to respond to the ever-growing problems that fentanyl poses to the health and safety of Californians. What are the latest measures that they're considering? Yeah, for reference, um, between August of 21 and 22, American uh, officials estimated that there are about 108,000 overdose deaths and two-thirds of those involved synthetic opioids, mostly fentanyl. So fentanyl clearly is having a major effect on the health of the American people. And legislators, they're doing what they can on a state level, perhaps not everything they can, but among this package of bills designed to combat fentanyl overdoses, we have one bill that's directed at having CalRx, which is the state-owned drug production group, to create fentanyl testing strips that can be really cheap, really accessible to end users. Another bill in California would encourage healthcare providers to issue three-day prescriptions for Narcan, an opioid overdose reversal medication. It's not especially easy to get a Narcan kit if you are just an everyday person right now, but if doctors could give out prescriptions for pretty much anyone to have them, insurance company would be subsidizing it through a copay. Uh, may not even necessarily have to be for you. Maybe it's a good idea for all households to have nearby because you don't know who is suddenly going to be overdosing from what. Because again, fentanyl is showing up in every drug these days. Even what you think are legal drugs that are just illicitly acquired could end up with fentanyl, like you know, some codeine or Oxycontin. And we're just living in very dangerous times. 
And that's what the testing strips are for, right? It's to be able to identify whether there's fentanyl in whatever it is that you're taking, correct? Right. These are low-cost testing strips that are very effective at letting anyone know whether their drugs are going to be laced with fentanyl or not. Thank you, Kenneth, for your insight on this story. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at thecentersquare.com. Thank you, Eliana and Kenneth, for that update. You're listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Crew. With the latest in education news, Dan McCaleb is back to tell us more. A new survey from Pew Research Center asked teachers and students about their experiences amid significant cultural divides around gender, race, sexual orientation. Joining me today to discuss the survey is Chalkboard's K-12 editor, Brendan Clary. Brendan, tell us uh, what you saw in the results. Yeah, Dan, this is really striking uh, to me. Given how much I've written about some of these cultural issues that have played out in school boardrooms, um, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of hot hot button issues, right? We have race, racial issues, right, of, of critical race theory that's been outlawed in, you know, a uh, number of states, right, where they've banned language on divisive topics, and that would include critical race theory or different things about race, sexuality, gender, those are the, the divisive issues, like the hot button topics. And those have come up time and time again. You know, we've we've ta- written a lot about a chalkboard, uh, some of the content moderation book banning uh, as, as you know, critics of that, like to call it, in the proponents of it, you know, say we're just trying to remove what we say is sexually explicit material out of school libraries. And so that's that's kind of the, the debate and it's been fought uh, all through 2023. I mean, there's been some advocacy organizations that have, you know, kept enough, like have tried to keep track of of which uh, titles have been removed from those libraries and have been challenged. And, you know, that's a very different number, right? Uh, a lot of times they're challenged and, you know, they go under a review and then a lot of parents or teachers will say, no, this is fine. We're going to leave this in here. So you got to kind of be be wary of, of some of the, the numbers or some of the hype around that. But I mean, th- it's been talked about a lot, right? And then also we have gender notification policies. So, but this survey, you know, it basically asked teachers and then it also, there's there's a couple of different surveys in there, but one, one of them was specifically toward teachers and it, ask them, you know, what do these current debates, specifically around gender and race, what kinds of impact do these have on your job? 53% of teachers said, this does not have any impact on on my job. So, you know, over half. And then the rest, of a lot the, a lot of the remaining teachers said, this is a very negative thing, so that this does wear down on them. And, you know, that this would this would impact their, their job performance significantly. So I, I thought that that was kind of startling. You know, we, we've seen a lot of, of reporting, a lot of talking about, you know, how this affects teachers, what they're able to talk about and not talk about, you know, so over half teachers saying this is not, you know, really affecting me on the day to day. And, you know, so it, it could be, you know, there's some, some teachers that are sort of caught in the crossfire here. They have to try to teach content that maybe, you know, in history or social studies, and maybe they have to try to navigate that a little bit more carefully. Anecdotally, I've heard that from some teachers, where some professional development folks in Florida that, you know, uh, a bill, that bill, called by critics, you know, the don't say gay bill that kind of limits the discussions that can happen in classrooms around uh, gender identity uh, and sexual orientation, that that can limit, you know, some of the discussions that they have, why, you know, different things about that. And so there are some some district policies and statewide policies that kind of, you know, maybe you have to, to tread a little bit differently after it was enacted. So it's just an interesting, you know, kind of codifying what we've heard and putting down, you know, what we've heard into data, right? That a number of teachers, the majority of teachers, a lot of them, 71% said uh, they don't actually have enough influence over what's taught in public schools in the area. So that, you know, the, the government has sort of too much of a say, you know, that there's not enough leeway for individual teachers to talk about what they want. 
Also, and I'm happy to talk about this more, and it was just really interesting. A lot of students said that, that they shouldn't be learning about gender identity in school. So I thought that that was a very interesting finding that 48% of teens said that they shouldn't learn about gender identity in school. And so that that's young people saying, you know, this shouldn't be included in my curriculum. So there's some surprising findings there. I think that, you know, these teens recognize almost half said, you know, this shouldn't be taught. The survey results are certainly interesting, Brennan. Going on back up to your first comment about teachers. So even though 53%, small majority, slight majority of teachers saying that debates about these cultural issues like race and gender identity, they don't impact their ability to do their jobs. 41% say it does. And and I would, even though there it's a less than a majority, 41% is a significant number. How many students are these teachers teaching where their job is impacted because, you know, these cultural issues have been thrust into these schools. I know that's an impossible question uh, for you to answer, Brendan, but it does mean that tens of thousands of students are impacted uh, because their teachers are impacted. Did Pew offer any analysis about what these survey results mean? For example, those 41% of teachers who say their jobs are impacted. I mean, what, what does that mean? Yeah, I think I think that that's a great question. I mean, I think the hard part with these kind of surveys is that it's, it's sort of raw data, right? This is what people are, this is what the uh, teachers are saying. This is what they're reporting. It's not really clear, you know, how it's affecting them, right? I'm not sure if it's like, you know, it's just, they feel like uh, maybe an emotional toll, or is it, you know, they feel like they can't actually have these conversations, or, you know, do they feel like this is affecting some of their students who maybe identify with like a sexual minority, you know, so it's hard to say exactly what that feels. Cause I think, I think that, you know, there's some, some wiggle room there of what does that mean, right? For this impact. So that the specific language is that percent of public K-12 teachers who say that the current debates on how public K-12 schools should be teaching certain topics like race and gender identity have had a negative or no impact or positive impact on their ability to do their job. So that's, that's pretty broad. You know, I thought, like sort of related to this, you know, they did see the breakdown of sort of the political views of teachers. So that was an interesting thing that came up, I think, is that they asked teachers essentially, you know, what what is the likelihood that something comes up in your classroom? And uh, 67% of Democratic and Democratic-leaning teachers versus 43% of Republican and Republican-leaning teachers say that topics related to racism or racial inequality come up at least sometimes in their classroom. And then 36% of Democratic teachers versus 21% of Republican teachers say the same thing about sexual orientation and gender identity, that it comes up at least sometimes in their classroom. So if a teacher is Democratic or Democratic-leaning, they're more likely to have conversations around gender identity or uh, race, racism, or racial inequality. So that that is some some of those kinds of things. And again, you know, is it that, you know, if you live in a more democratic controlled area, like a bigger city, that that is going to come up a little bit more, you know, maybe. So there are some of these things that we just don't know because of, you know, there are different causes and effects, right, Dan? So I I think that it's kind of hard to parse out exactly what's going on there, but it is, you know, it is an interesting thing to look at and to sort of, to sort of try to conceptualize. Well, thank you, Brendan, uh, for joining us today. Listeners can keep up with this story and more at chalkboardnews.com. Thank you, Dan and Brendan, for that update. You've been listening to the Center Square Radio Hour. I'm your host, Chris Krug. In economic news, the Congressional Budget Office released its 10-year economic outlook. Joining me, as always, to get into it is Ph.D. economist Dr. Orfe Dibungi. Dr. Rowe, um, I want to talk to you about this report from the Congressional Budget Office. Before we do that, the Congressional Budget Office 
is what and why should we be listening to the reports that they produce? Okay, well, let me just break it down. Okay, the Congressional Budget Office, basically, uh, their job is to produce the like an independent budget and economic outlook for Congress. You know, it's all like before we decide to vote on any kind of uh, appropriation or budgetary, uh, you know, budgets for the United States, right? By the way, not just a budget, but also any kind of new policy. We want to, we, we're trying to, we're trying to score the impact of a policy, right? Or the merit of a policy. And so we, we turn to the Congressional Budget Office to do that work for us. Or at least when I say us, I mean, Members of Congress. It's supposed to be nonpartisan. It's not supposed to have implicit bias. Some people have accused it of leaning left. Others have accused it at different times of leaning right. It's not supposed to do anything but, but deliver straight up economic data. The thing that you and I were talking about that was coming out of the, the CBO uh, was this budget and economic outlook, which is a 10-year projection, 2024 to 2034. And in this report, the one piece, and this is a long document. I don't know how many pages are in this, but it's, there's a, and everybody can go and look at it at cbo.gov, cbo.gov is the labor force projections. And, you know, where you and I found it to be really interesting would be projections based on this new migrant population that's coming into the United States, which has not been quantified in, in any conclusive way. Some people estimate 8 million. I've heard as many as 14 million people have come into the United States since 2021. And so, you know, when you look at the projection over time, uh, and there's a chart, and we invite everybody to go and take a look at this is on, I believe, page seven of the, of the PDF. If you look at the February 23 prediction versus the revised prediction, it is taking into account a significant growth in the population of the United States and it's significant growth in the potential labor force. So can you offer some insights on this? Can you, can you give us an uh, understanding? First of all, why is it important to have this kind of a forecast and what would the average American do with this information? Totally. I mean, historically immigration has been a boon for America. And I'll tell you why. A couple of fact, a couple of things. The number one, uh, it's an increase in the labor force and in a, and in a situation, especially now more than ever before, the situation we are plagued with labor shortages that have pushed wage growth higher and pushed and potentially caused upside inflation risk to remain pretty strong. Uh, we could use an increase in the labor force, especially in the sectors that are plagued by the shortages. We're talking about healthcare, right? Construction, where you just have these labor shortages that are uh, becoming a problem. So that a big benefit. In the past, immigrants have also uh, brought, you know, more ingenuity and technologies. We've seen massive increase in productivity growth from immigration as well. Just to pause you there, though, I mean, I, I think that the immigration that we're looking at here would be different than the the U.S. standard, which is roughly about a million, you know, new immigrants a year, you know, are, are, are added in. When you add in 
Almost eight times. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, probably, well, yeah, I mean, well, I, some people would say eight to 14 times. Um, and you don't have a, a, a good handle on, you know, who these people are or what their capabilities are. They're being admitted, you know, into the country without clear work record or even clear record of who they are. I guess it's kind of, I find it kind of odd that the, that the CBO can somehow process well, these numbers and make sense of them. I would argue though that regardless of where they are on the, you know, in terms of labor and, you know, skill, I would argue that because labor shortages were more severe at the bottom end of the income distribution in services sectors. That's totally fair. I they, think where, where I was they, trying to, you know, just to get a word in is that, you know, that the, you know, immigration, our process has been somewhat measured. It has been a mess. And, 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 and let's be honest. But traditionally, yeah. I mean, you know, that like when you're talking about bringing in, you know, bringing in people into the United States, the United States has been keenly interested in bringing in people who could do exactly what you had said at the beginning, who could innovate, be entrepreneurial, totally. and, you know, bring technology or the ability to work with technology, you know, in theory to make the country totally, better. Totally. It, it works both ways, right? I talked about the fact that you get an increase in the labor force. What I didn't talk about was the fact that you also get a an increase in housing demand, essentially. Right. Yeah, right. Right. And we're how many houses short per year estimate? We're a four point three million, uh, a four point three million housing unit deficit in twenty twenty one. I'm going to be doing some work to update that study this year to find out if we made any progress. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of building during the pandemic, true, which was good, but lots of people also went out to try to move out on their own during the pandemic, yep. right? And now, now we have the surge in immigration, so we have this big increase in housing demand. And, and by the way, that's good for housing. I think we've also had a lot of people that have retrenched and gone in, and and we have more multifamily scenarios under a single roof. Than we've had due to the affordability issues, but I, but I think I think we're heading in the right direction okay. when it comes to, when it comes to you know housing supply. The problem though that I foresee is that we might not be moving fast enough, right? So you know, and now that you have another increase in demand, you know, at this kind of shock because this came out of surprise to everyone, then you know we need to build even faster. And I don't know if we're going to be able to build faster. I think we're, we're still ramping up. We need a sustained increase in new construction and housing supply to absorb all of that demand, which is, by the way, another reason why I, I worry a little bit about when we talk about the general disinflation and the fact that rate cuts should be coming, that we're trying to get, we're trying to get back to the 2% target. And mm-hmm. right. I worry a little bit that it might take longer to get back to the Fed's 2% target because, you know, we are demand on the demand side is, uh, still, in my opinion, outpacing our ability to produce goods and services and to produce housing. Any final thoughts on this subject matter? I know this is interesting and it's, it's deeply complex and we could spend probably an hour on it. And we, we, we desperately need, we desperately need increases in productivity growth in this country. And again, and some people might also argue that because we had an aging population, having a young workforce is good over the long run. You know, and I kind of, I kind of agree with that. You know, we need, we need those younger people. We need workers to help us 
especially given that our aging population is going to require a lot more from our government, from our finances as a whole, right? That we're going to have to spend more in taxes to sustain this aging population. And so in order to prevent tax rates from rising, we need that increase in the tax base. And that's going to have to come from younger, able, highly skilled workers. I appreciate your thoughts as always, Dr. O. That'll do it for another week of the Center Square Radio Hour. The Center Square Radio Hour is a production of America's Talking Network, produced by Eliana Cardotal. If you missed some of today's show, you can find it at americastalking.com. I'm Chris Krug, and on behalf of everyone at Franklin News Foundation, thank you for listening to the Center Square Radio Hour.